So yesterday, after Scott calls me, I, I looked at the theme that we were supposed to be teaching on. So when I don't teach, I don't even look at what we're supposed to be teaching on because that's their problem. And so I get to do other things. And so I was like, oh, man, what are we supposed to be looking at? And so the topic was fear. And I was like, oh, that's appropriate. Uh, and so I did a whole thing like, let, let's look online and see what fear is, okay? Do you know that there is a whole thing called francophobia? You know what francophobia is? Fear of French culture. How many of you are like, yeah, totally, I'm with that? No? You, okay, some people like it, some people don't. There's a thing called thasophobia, which all of you are sitting down. That's the fear of sitting down. Any of you have a fear of that this morning? No? Okay, here's a tough one. There's one called palatophobia. Are you afraid right now? It's the fear of bald people. <laughs> so there's a few of us in the room that God has given excellent heads to, and we might scare you, so look out. But I, I looked even more. There was a survey taken a number of years ago about what people are afraid of. 74% uh, of the people who were surveyed, I don't know if that represents the world or America or like the house that they were in, 74% uh, were afraid of public speaking. Wow, 74%. I'm, that's you. Yeah. 68% were afraid of death. Jerry Seinfeld has a bit that says most of America or most of the world would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy, given that stat. Okay, there, there is 30.5%, the 0.5 is important, right? 30.5% are afraid of spiders. How many of you joined them? No, not afraid of spiders? We're okay? We like spiders. Wonderful. 11% are still afraid of the dark. Any of those? No? 10% afraid of clouds. <laughs> we live in the wrong area. I don't think any of those folks are here. They're all in Arizona or New Mexico or someplace where clouds don't exist. 6.8% are afraid of clowns. Higher? It's got to be higher? I told Dylan that this morning, and he said when he was living in North Carolina, he said that there was a whole thing. Remember a couple years ago, the clowns were popping up everywhere? People trying to mess with you? And he said, if I'm in the forest and there's a clown in front of me, it's me or him, and it's go time. And I was like, that makes sense. See, there, we have a whole bunch of things that people are afraid of. You talk to my wife, she is afraid of sharks, so much so that bathtubs make her nervous. She is that afraid of sharks. Lakes, she doesn't want sharks. Uh, we go, I, I grew up surfing in the salt water, so it was a lot of fun, so sharks didn't bother me. I used to see them all the time. Uh, but drowning was shockingly one of my biggest fears. Even though I'd go surfing, I just didn't want to drown, because who wants to drown? It seems like an awful way to go. But fear in our lives, fear in our world is actually quite normal. Fear is a good thing. Uh, back in the time, fear uh, uh, is, is what activates that fight or flight mechanism that we all have. Uh, it sends the adrenaline pumping, it makes your breath shorter, it makes your, your, your other senses more aware, you're on high alert because you might need to fight a clown or flee a cloud, one of those, or a bald person. But it's just one of those things, like it triggers your actions to move. Fear is a valid form of being human. We're all afraid of something. However, too much fear, when it's left uncontrolled, becomes debilitating, and oftentimes it becomes life-threatening. We can be trapped by our own fears, and we develop phobias that keep us from living our lives. 
We develop phobias that keep us locked in our homes. We develop phobias that keep us out of the salt water when the salt water is a beautiful thing. There's a fear. That when, when fears get too far, they, they can cripple our lives. I mean, it seems like an odd time to talk about fear, right? We're supposed to be talking about things that are merry and bright and Christmas and Jesus is in a manger. But fear is actually a big theme that we see in the first, well, entire, the entire scripture is full of commands to fear not. And in the scripture, when we look at Jesus' story, the birth story, fear pops up quite often. In the first couple, when the first chapter of Luke, fear is mentioned three times. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The command from uh, Gabriel to Zechariah that day after 400 years of silence was don't be afraid. The message from any angel is always don't be afraid. Fear is something that we all operate on. And usually when, when we're afraid, rather what happens is we run away from that fear and we miss out on what's behind the fear. We take our security plans, we take our way of life seriously, and when God breaks through to us, our first response is fear, because this is a different plan than we ever had. So when there's something new that comes along, instantly we're afraid of it. When a new revelation comes, when a new way of life comes, when a new opportunity comes, your first gut reaction is fear. Angels break through in Scripture 273 times. Each one of them, don't be afraid. You can cover the 270 in your quiet time this week. I can give you the references later. Today I want to look at the three of them that pop up to us in Luke. The first one we see is with the man Zechariah. We spent a lot of time with Zechariah this time, but Zechariah is a very intriguing story the more you dig into it. He was the first one that was told not to be afraid. Uh, look in Luke 1.13. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And look closely at that phrase, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. We're all Bible studiers here, we should be because we follow Christ. What's his fear? His fear is that his prayer wasn't being heard. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what? Don't be afraid of your prayers not being heard, Zechariah. You, you, you don't have to to fear that. A few weeks ago, we looked at Zechariah and how he walked through the temple and saw all the reminders of what and how God has been moving all throughout his life. And God was moving even though Zechariah didn't know, even though Zechariah couldn't see. And God was moving to answer his prayers, even though Zechariah was afraid they weren't. All of us can share that fear. We've all prayed for something for a long period of time and things haven't happened. And the fear that comes on is, Maybe, maybe these prayers aren't actually doing anything. What's the point of this prayer? And I know the verses as well as you. In Mark 24, it tells us that we should ask whatever we want for in prayer. And believe it, and you'll receive it, and it'll be yours. And Philippians 4, 6 says, don't be anxious for anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Matthew 7 says, ask and you'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, knocks. Or everyone who seeks, finds. And to them who knock, it will be opened. All of these offer this sense of assurance that your prayers are being heard and hopefully your prayers are being answered. It's the assurance that we have. Yet when the answer doesn't come quickly, or maybe not as quickly as we want it, I, I know for me, it's I want, I pray, and then I look up like, do I have it yet? No, okay. God didn't hear my prayer, right? 
when that doesn't happen, when our years of prayer go unanswered, the fears start to bubble up in us, like, is this doing any good? Because if our prayer isn't being answered when we need an answer, or even heard for that matter, what's the point of prayer? Prayer becomes just a weird go through the motions of wishful thinking combined with pious language, and it makes us look good that we're praying and we're supposed to be praying. And then we start asking, what's the point of this? If our prayers aren't being answered, then what kind of God are we praying to in the, in the, in the first place? Is God even present? Is God even aware? Which brings us to a far deeper fear of being abandoned, being fooled, being helpless, and sometimes even being powerless. It's easy to stumble into that prayer and into that fear. It's very easy. It's, and given the amount of time that our friend Zechariah prayed, not just for a child, but more for the redemption of Israel, it makes sense that he was beginning to succumb to the fear that God wasn't even listening, that God wasn't even answering anything. Yet the angel says to him, what? Don't be afraid. And let me calm your fears here, Zechariah. Don't be afraid. Your prayers have been answered. Not only heard, but answered. He still hears your prayers. God still hears your prayers. Even though he seems distant, even when he seems silent, he hears the prayers. You're not alone. Your grief and your desperation do not go unseen. He still hears the prayers. There's a, a wild story in the book of Daniel. It's one of my favorite stories because it's just that weird. Uh, in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, Daniel has been praying for some time. And in that time, he's and he hasn't gotten an answer. And poor Daniel, he was waiting for three weeks. Uh, some of us have been praying for three decades for something. Daniel hadn't gotten an answer or a sign of an answer for three weeks. In verse 2, it says that he was distraught. Uh, he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he couldn't put lotion on. And it's a big deal for them back then. He didn't have, uh, he didn't have a response what he was used to getting. But he too was one of the 270 verses where we see he's being visited by an angel. And here's what happens. He's distraught. Daniel chapter 10, verse 11. And the angel appears to him and Daniel's afraid. Okay. Daniel and the, and the angel says, Daniel, don't worry. You're highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up for I have been sent to you. And when he said, and when the angel said this to him, he stood up or I stood up and trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before the Lord, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. This is the wild part. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time not yet to come. So here's Daniel praying for the deliverance of his people, praying for a sign that God would give him. For 21 days he's praying, and for 21 days God had not only heard his prayer, but was attempting to answer his prayer, was attempting to give Daniel just what he needed, just what he wanted. Yet what happened? Here you have the angel, most likely Gabriel, in a spiritual battle with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, which is a nice way of saying one of Satan's demons. The prayer, Daniel's answer to prayer, was being held up by spiritual warfare. 
Now, there's a lot here we can unpack. There is books upon books about just this chapter, and we don't have time to go in it today, but I want us to pay attention to this. We fear that our prayers aren't being answered, and so the first thing we do is stop praying. That's the last thing you should do. When you pray, you enter into, and this is the wild part that our culture isn't necessarily comfortable with yet, we enter into a spiritual warfare. We're asking God to move. We're asking God to do something. And on the other side is a, is a entity, the Satan, Satan demons, who don't want what God wants, and they will try actively to stop it. And what happens when they stop it? You get discouraged. And what happens when you get discouraged? You stop praying. And who wins in that? Satan. What's Daniel do? Three weeks, prayed, fasted. He kept on praying. Even though he didn't understand what was happening, he didn't understand the spiritual battle that he could yet see. All of this reminds us of this part. God is still answering your prayers, even when he seems distant, even when he seems silent, he still hears. You're not alone. Your prayers are being heard, even though the answer hasn't come yet. They've been answered. You're in that terrible time of waiting for the answer. God hears your prayers. In Psalm 34, 18, it says this, God is near to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits have been crushed. Whatever you're praying for, however long you've been praying for, hope is still here for you. Don't fear that your prayers have never been answered. Don't fear that they're falling on deaf ears, as if God is some kind of God who doesn't listen to you. Your prayers are being heard. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid. Your prayers are being heard. The answer is coming. Keep praying. The next fear that we see exemplified here in this chapter comes with Mary. Mary was visited by an angel, and again, she has fear too. Her story resonates a lot with us. Look what Gabriel says to her. He comes to Zechariah and says, don't be afraid. Your prayers have been answered. He says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Then you see what she was afraid of. For you have found favor with God. Don't be afraid. You have found favor. Favor isn't something that Mary was quite experienced with. For someone like her in that time, seeing her own value wasn't something she ever thought of. In her day, in that culture, her worth was tied to other factors outside of her, whether or not she was married or not, whether or not she had children, how old she was, what she did with her life. Her, her favor in the world was tied to a bunch of external circumstances. And so Mary tends to listen to the loudest voices in her life. And the first thing that the angel said to her was, don't be afraid. You have worth with something else. You have found favor. And that's hard for us to believe, because if you're like me, we tend to find our value in the loudest voices that are around us, right? When someone compliments us, we find value in that. It makes us feel better. When we do something good or we can point to a project that we finish, we feel good. When we, when we do something, it, that gives us our worth. We hold tightly to those loudest voices, especially when they tell us that we're not good enough. And it doesn't have to be someone close to you. One time I was thrown off by a passing comment some stranger made to me when I was walking down the sidewalk, and it threw me off for days because it made me think, oh, maybe that person's right. They don't even know me. Maybe they, they were right with what they mumbled at me. We tend to think that, and we say that we're not good enough. 
And our fear of, of not having any worth stokes the deepest fear. We fear nothingness. We fear insignificance. We fear that our lives will just be evaporated like the rain on the sidewalk and there'll be no evidence after, after the sun comes out. That we make no contribution at all. We fear coming and going and no one ever noticing that we're there. It's why it bothers us when a friend forgets to call us that they're all going out this weekend. It's why it bothers us uh, when, when, the, when our colleague takes credit for the group project that we were all doing, even though you did most of the work. It's why it's so disheartening when the teacher mispronounced your name over and over and over again. All of these stoke the fear that no one cares, and we think that no one cares, and we tie it to ourselves, and we say, no one cares about me. Maybe I'm not worth caring about. And so we seek approval, we seek attention uh, from a special person, we, we seek the affirmation from the boss, we drop names in conversations or drop our experiences that are better than everybody else's. We wear college rings on our finger, I don't know if we still do that, but I have friends that do that, to say that this is important, I went here to this college and we wear that. Some of my friends even still wear their letterman's jackets, it's, it's odd. It's why we pay a surgeon to make us look better. It's, it's why we strive to buy the flashy car. It's because we deeply want to be noticed. Fear does that to us. It builds a wall between what you think you can do and what God wants to do. And soon your fear of not mattering becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Our fear of insignificance creates, uh, the, the, res the results that it creates are dreadful. It arrives at the des destination that it, it desperately tries to avoid. Sports metaphor, for those of you who know what that is, I, I, I loosely call basketball a sport. Sport, okay? But if someone is sitting at the foul line trying to shoot what they call free throws, and if the whole time he's sitting there, he or she is sitting there and saying, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss, I'm afraid I'm going to miss, what's going to happen? I'm going to miss. It's with everything. If, if, if you're constantly afraid of falling down and all you think about is falling down, what's going to happen? You're going to fall down. You're not going to make the shot. Your fear becomes self-fulfilling. If you pass your days going, I'll never make a difference in this world. Why am I even breathing? No one ever thinks I'm worth it. No one thinks I'm worthy. If your day goes on and on just like that, then guess what? you'll be sentencing yourself to that kind of life without any possibility of parole. Your fear becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mary knew this, and likely she felt this. She's well aware that she doesn't have outstanding credentials, likely uneducated. She lives on the edge of a podunk city on an, on, in a city that everyone tried to avoid, and her resume is likely blank. It probably just says Mary on top. We don't get a last name from her. Mary's thoughts were probably something that we might have said. God doesn't hang out with people like me. And if no one hangs out with people like me, why on earth would God want anything to do with her? She's barely outgrown her acne. She was probably 16 at tops. Uh, she has a crush on a guy named Joe, and yet God sees all past these reasons. And he approaches her. Perhaps this is why the angel taught to tell her twice that she had found favor with God. He doesn't tell her that once. He says, Mary, highly favored one. And then later on, it says, Mary, don't be afraid. You're favored with God. Two times he had to break through to her. 
In verse 28, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you highly favored. The Lord is with you. The root word behind both of these words for favored is the word grace. Here in verse 28, it means to pursue with grace or to pursue one with a special honor. In verse 30, she's found favor or found grace from God. She's honored because, not because of anything she had done, but simply because God chose her as the object of her, his grace. The Lord was with her. There's her favor. Mary, the angel says, you matter. You're not insignificant. Your life does have meaning. Your life does have purpose. God sees you, and you have his favor. He looks highly upon you. Perhaps that's your fear, too. Just like Mary, you fear not mattering. Perhaps you hear Mary's story, and and, and you disagree with God. You question his judgment. You say, God, you're crazy. You disagree with his idea that he can use you. You disagree with his idea that you have found a, a special place in his heart. You disagree with his taste in choice. Psalm 139 says this, You were fearfully and wonderfully made. And you have a hard time believing that. Psalm 139 continues. It says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I'm awake, I'm still with you. You hear that and go, there's no way God can think that of me. But he does. You found favor. You are one of his children. He loves you. The grace is for you. You fear not mattering. Yet God says, you matter to me. Your fear of not mattering doesn't stand when you see how much you actually do matter to God. God only has good ideas, and you're one of them. In Ephesians 2.10, it says, We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us to do. And our fear blinds us to the possibility of the last part of that verse. If we don't fear that God has made us good, if we don't fear that God favors us, we'll never be able to accomplish what he wants us to do. Why? Because fear is that self-fulfilling prophecy. God can't use me, so I'm not even going to try. Your fear is stopping you from God being, your fear of God not wanting you comes from the fear of people around you not wanting you, and then you take yourself out of the game. Fear does that to us. Don't be afraid. You found favor with God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what God made you to be. You found favor. Don't be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Don't be afraid. You've found favor. The last fear comes from the shepherds. If I'm honest with you, if we take Jesus out of this picture, out of this whole story, which we shouldn't, but for a moment, go with me. If I look at the Christmas story, my favorite characters are the shepherds. They're the ones who are sleeping in the field at night. That's not my favorite part about them because sleeping on the ground is terrible. But they're the ones who are camping. I don't get it. But they're the ones who are outside. They're the ones who are away from them. In our nativity scenes, if you have them still, the shepherds are usually well-groomed. They look like they've had a shower in the last day. They look great. That's how we think of shepherds. But they weren't. The shepherds are, are, aren't really endeared in that culture. They're the smelly ones. They hang out with animals all day. They sleep outside. They hang around uh, sh uh, poop. The sheep's poop all day long. That's what they live in. They smell. Usually most of them had criminal records. 
They couldn't have a job inside. Some of them didn't have any kind of friends. This is why they chose separating. They're the ones you don't bring home. They're the ones that when they walk down your street, you're kind of going, ooh, I wonder where they're going. Those are the shepherds. The shepherds aren't what we usually think they are. We don't know their names. We don't know how old they are. We don't know how many they were. We don't know how much, but we do, what we do know is that they were probably weren't expecting what happened to them that night. The shepherds were watching sheep sleep. It sounds more exciting than it actually was. We count sheep to go to sleep. What does watching sheep do? Sounds pretty boring. They didn't have any excitement. Any excitement was bad excitement. I've heard that from some of my, my brother-in-law is a sheriff down in L.A. or used to be, he retired. And the best nights, he said, were the most boring nights. Why? Because there was nothing going on. He can come home. They prayed and they hoped for a boring evening. And I totally understand that. We have firefighters and first responders families here, and they do the same thing. The best night is the night they don't get any calls. This is what they were hoping for. An exciting night for shepherds mean they have to battle off a wolf, maybe a bear, or, or maybe they have to uh, take away some poachers. They weren't wanting any excitement. But what happened that night? Just because you don't want excitement, just because you don't want something to interrupt your life, doesn't mean that you'll get what you wish. Just because you want a calm life doesn't mean you'll get a calm life. The moment you sit down is the moment that something is about to happen. In life, when you want calm or everything's going great, you sit down, you try to enjoy it, then you get the phone call and the bank says no to your financing. Or maybe the doctor comes back and says, we need to do some more tests. Or, or, or perhaps the mechanic says the car can't be fixed. Uh, the boss says something with the word transfer, and it's to a place where you don't want to go. Uh, the unexpected is often assumed to be nothing but bad news. And so when something unexpected happens, their first line is, oh no, what's this going to happen? What's going to happen here? It's why we don't answer phone numbers that we don't recognize on our phone, right? I don't want to answer that. It might be bad news. We avoid it. So it's no wonder that the, the shepherds that evening were terrified. They were expecting calm, and then they get sideswiped with a singing heavenly telegram. Great, they thought. What now? This can't be good. But look what the angel says. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. Their response is ours. Fear, terror, the pit in your stomach, the weakness in your legs, the shortness of breath. We assume the worst news before we hear the best news. And I do this all the time. When someone tells me they need to talk to me later about something, oh, what did I do? What are they going to tell me? Uh, how is this going to go over? I hate those calls from nowhere. I avoid them. I push those meetings off. I don't want more bad news. Do you want more bad news? No, we hear that there's going to be an announcement from a political person in charge, and we go, oh, great. What are they going to say now? We don't like change. We say we love it, but deep down, change brings a whole bunch of fear before it brings a whole bunch of faith. We always assume the worst before we look for the best, and our fear of change keeps us from, God, from seeing God's good news all around us. When God interrupts our lives with something that we have never seen, something we've never accepted, or expected, we panic, we run, and we avoid. There are two ways that we run. Uh, our fear of bad news gives us going to two different postures. The first posture is this. Uh, it's called the Pollyanna one, right? 
that nothing ever bad will happen. And so we pretend that nothing's the matter. Everything is great. We gloss over the reality of the human experience and say, everything's fine. And we ignore the problems. We live in a, and it ignores the reality that we live in a dangerous, toxic world where things go wrong. Living this way ignores reality and it's not healthy. So you can't go around life acting and pretending and running away from your fears by pretending everything is just fine. My six-year-old does this. Uh, he got in trouble this week. He gets in trouble every week. Uh, but he got in trouble this week. He did something that he wouldn't do, and so it was consequence time. And we all hate consequence, right? And, and so what he'll do, if he knows he's done something bad, and if it's in front of one of us, and Carrie's not there or I'm not there, we'll, we'll talk about it. We usually talk about it in front of him. And here's what Judah does. I don't want to hear anything bad. And so he puts his hands over his ears and he runs to the corner of the couch and says, please stop, please stop, please stop. This is bad news. He's ignoring anything that could be troublesome. It's not just when it's a, a consequence, but when it's something hard like uh, pick up your toys. Oh, I don't want to do it. That's hard. I, it's change. I don't want to do it or we're going to change your room around. No, panic, hands over the ears. And we do that. We've just grown up and have different ways of coping. And so we ignore the pain in our lives by flipping through your phone. We ignore the pain in our lives by going to a substance. We ignore the pain in our lives by being social and never having that time of introspection to yourself. And so we ignore the pain. We put on the Pollyanna goggles and everything is fine and everything will just be fine. The other way to deal with this is the, the chicken little way where every single thing tells you that the sky is falling or has fallen. Anything that comes around, well, everything's going, the light burned out, the whole world's gone. Uh, the, my shoe won't tie or stay tied, this must mean that I'm going to, to die later. And it just, it escalates, it keeps going. The smallest thing and everything is falling apart. There has to be a sweet spot somewhere between Chicken Little and Pollyanna, right? There has to be a place between denial and absolute panic where we can stand as Christ followers who are level-headed, clear-thinking, still believing, still hoping, eyes wide open, afraid, but not running. This is what the shepherds did. Scared, but did they run away? They stood there. Probably scared stiff, right? Good thing. But they stood there, unfazed. In, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. And what were they afraid of? I bring you good news. Don't be afraid. It's not bad news. Don't worry. Not everything is going to be bad news. Not everything is falling apart all the time. Some things are, but not everything is falling apart all the time. I bring you good news that will what? Cause great joy for not only you, but for all people. Good news. And we all say, I doubt it, but go on. Let's see how good this news is. It's not just good news, it's great news that leads to some joy. Yet most times, you and I don't stick around long enough to hear the good news that brings the joy because any sign of change or any sign of interruption, and we start to panic. Any sign of problems means that God is absent from a situation. But the shepherds didn't run, and I'm sure glad they didn't uh, because verse 11, they would have missed it. Angels show up, they bolt, and the angel's sitting there going, but I have this for you. 
Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. Sometimes our fears of bad news keep us from hearing the greatest news, that in the middle of disruption that life will naturally bring, Christ is being born. In the middle of the pain, in the middle of the panic, in the middle of disruption, Jesus is still working. We see this all throughout Jesus' life. Remember that time he was sleeping on a boat? And the storm's about to capsize the ship, and he's taking a nap. And what's he do? In the middle of the storm, the disciples are freaking out. They're bailing water. Jesus is sawing logs in the back of the boat. And they run to him and go, don't you care? We're going to die. And Jesus looks at them and goes, do you have any faith? Storm, shut up. And everything's calm. In the middle of our storms, in the middle of our panic, in the middle of our fear of bad news, Jesus is sitting right in the middle of it saying, I want to show you something better. doesn't mean I'm going to get rid of the pain. It means that I'm going to give you some perspective in it, and I'm going to work through it. Psalm 27.3 says this, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. goes on to say that there is no place better to be than in the presence of the Lord, even when he's surrounded by an enemy in the middle of your biggest fears, in the centers of your worst regret, in the midst of the most terrifying news cycle, David at this time, and David at most times, was still confident. Jesus can still be found. Joy can still be discovered. It goes on in verse 13. I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he says, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Wait for the Lord. Take heart. It's exactly what the shepherds did that night. They didn't bail at the sign of trouble. They didn't bail in the face of fear. They stood confident. Were they scared? Absolutely. Were they terrified? You better believe it. But they didn't bail at the sign of trouble. Had they done that, they would have missed the, be the best news in the, from the fear of the bad news. It's a great thing that in each one of these instances, they lingered long enough or else they might have missed Jesus. Yesterday in our house, it was dubbed Home Alone Day. Uh, Judah is finally old enough where he can watch Home Alone and not be terrified for the rest of the week. And so it, he himself, if you've seen my kid running around, he is a, a, a little bit of a Kevin McAllister. How many of you seen Home Alone? Okay, you see, okay good, so it's not too, too old. Okay. But he's, he's a Kevin McAllister. He loves to play pranks. We were watching uh, something the other night, and, and he saw the preview of all of the antics that Kevin McAllister did to the burglars, the, the wet bandits, or the sticky bandits, if you've seen Home Alone 2. And he saw everything, and he's like, I'm in. I want to do that. And so we watched it with him. And, and yes, there are so many plot holes in that movie, if we go by today's standards. The family was terrible to Kevin uh, we don't talk like that to our families. Uh, our friends say that to their children. We had to say that to ours. Like, yeah, we don't talk like this to each other. They were terrible to Kevin. I don't blame Kevin for everything that he did to his family. I would have been cheering for him. The whole movie could be solved in today's standards with a 12-minute movie clip with a text message or a phone call. Everything in that movie, there's holes all over the place. But if you suspend reality for it, you can learn a lot. Uh, it's even better movie if the six-year-old uh, has an imagination. And so it was a big day at our house. 
And if you zoom back from the movie and all the antics and the lovable presence of John Candy, the dysfunctional family, what you find is a kid who not only got what he wished for, but a kid who faced his fears. Remember that scene right in the beginning. He's under the bed. Okay, he's hiding. The bed's wet and, or red and the, the, the wet bandage tried to get in. And he has the pillows around him and he's hiding. And then he pulls the pillows away and he says, hiding under the bed is for wimps. I'm the man of this house. I'm going to defend it. And he rips the pillows out and he crawls out and he runs out to the, to the sidewalk and says, I'm not afraid of you. And then what happens? The South Bend shoveler comes up and looks at him. The South Bend shovel slayer, rather. That was his, his, his MO. And then he looks at him and does the scream thing. There are so many times where that kid screams. Screams at the top of his lungs and then runs back inside. And here's the interesting part. Kevin faced his fears, but then he was met with a bigger one. Only later did he find out that the South Bend shovel slayer was the person that he shouldn't have been afraid of. He was a kind man. And for the first three quarters of the movie, it kept him from meeting the person who would eventually save him. Remember the last scene, he comes in and stops them from hurting him. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, the spoilers, but if you haven't seen it by now, it's your fault. Uh, next time we'll talk about the sixth sense and I'll, I'll spoil that one for you. But if Kevin had lingered long enough, he would have realized that the person he was most afraid of was the answer to his biggest fears. You and I would do well to linger a little bit longer in the face of our fears. When we do, what we'll see is that behind our biggest fears, we can find an even bigger God. Our fears of not having our prayers answered. Our fears of not mattering. Our fears of bad news. Through the scriptures, you'll find story after story of people who have faced bad news in their life, and they were met with a God who was bigger than their bad news. And what makes these people so intriguing is that they lingered long enough to see God in the middle of it. So we keep praying. We keep understanding and believing God when he says that we matter, that we found favor. We linger in our troubles because James 1 says that you're going to have troubles. There's no way around it. But during your troubles, you will find perseverance and perseverance will lead to joy. It's not an absence of trouble. There's not an absence of fear. But being paralyzed by your fear is not what we should be going for. So fear not. Whatever your fear might be, fear not. Stare it down like the shepherds did that day. Stare it down and you might find the best news of your life right behind it. God is working even when you're afraid he's not. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you meet us in our fears. It's one of the things you're great at. In, in Matthew, you tell us that, uh, yeah, this world is going to have troubles. There are going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be a whole lot of other things. And you would do best not to be afraid of them. That's what you tell us in Matthew 26. And so, Lord, in the face of all that can go wrong, may we linger a little longer to see that in the middle of our fears, you're being born in the manger of our hearts. You're building our faith. You're building our perseverance. You're building our patience. 
in order that we might find joy. And so God, may we grow closer to you during this time, knowing that your perfect love will cast out every fear that we have. May we not run. May we not ignore it. May we not panic. But may we, like the shepherds and like David, like Mary and Zechariah, look at the fears and take heart and take faith that you've never left us. You never will. And behind the fear is a good news. May we find the good news in our lives today. In Jesus' name.